Well, hello, my friends. It is time once again for our midweek Bible study podcast. I am recording this in the middle of our VBS week, uh, so a little crazy over here. I've got VBS in the mornings, and I'm actually leaving tomorrow for annual conference, and so I'm sort of squeezing this in between, but I did want to make sure I got this out for you, because uh, I do have, have at least one question uh, that's been asked that I want to make sure I answer this week. Um, but I'm also, you know, for most of what I'm going to do today is is I'm going to give you just an overview of the book of Acts. We've started that recently. Um, I am going to be preaching on the book of Acts here in a few weeks, but it's going to take me a little while to get to it. And so in the meantime, I wanted to make sure that you uh, had an idea of, of sort of what the book is about and how to approach it. And we'll do that and then we'll get into our question. And this might be, this might be a relatively short podcast this week. We'll see. <clears throat> so first off, um, <clears throat> the book of Acts is, well, really, it's the second half of the book of Luke. Okay, so these are originally written as one, um, you could say one letter. It's written, it's addressed to somebody, um, right? So the book of Acts opens, it mentions this person, Theophilus, by name now. Some people have suggested that's an actual individual Luke is writing to. However, in Greek, Theophilus just means God lover. And so it's also entirely possible that Theophilus is not an individual, but rather um, just sort of a name for the people who are reading the book, the community of believers. Uh, We don't really know. But in any case, it's written uh, by Luke, it's the second half of what, he, of what he wrote, and they were originally one book, and they were only split into two when the canon of Scripture was, was decided on, which take, happens, you know, centuries after this was written. The, the official canon of Scripture, uh, the church existed for like 500 years before we actually had an official Bible. Um, so it, it took a while to decide what books should be included and in what order. Uh, and... and <clears throat> Luke and Acts were split up so that Luke could be paired with the other Gospels, but also because, you know, the content of the book of Acts makes this really nice bridge from the Gospels to the epistles, which is interesting because actually the book of Acts is written after all of those epistles are written, because um, the book of Acts tells the story of Paul's missionary journeys, and includes his final visit to Rome. He's, he's put to death in Rome. And so all of the letters that make up the rest of the New Testament, except for Revelation, are written before the book of Acts, and therefore before the Gospel of Luke. So just pause for a minute to think about that. That means all those churches that Paul plants all around the Mediterranean those are planted before, well, they don't have a Bible. They don't have, they don't have the Gospel of Luke, to be sure. Most of them actually probably don't have any of the Gospels. The only um, scripture they would have had access to is the Old Testament, but they would not have had written copies of the Gospels in all likelihood when Paul has planted them. Even the earliest Gospel to be written, which is Mark, um, most likely was written after Paul had planted at least most of those churches, if not all of them. 
we tend to forget that. He's doing all of that work, and when he talks about preaching the gospel, he's not opening up, <coughs> excuse me, he's not opening up a book of the gospel and reading from it and preaching from it. He's just preaching about his own experience of encountering Jesus and knowing Jesus. And he is, most importantly, he is using the Old Testament to prove that Jesus was who he says he was. Now that's significant. Most Christians today, I think, would have a hard time doing that. But it matters, and we'll get to why it matters in a minute. Um, so the book of Acts, this whole story, the full title is you know, Acts of the Apostles. But it's really about Peter and Paul. And so the first half of the book deals mainly with Peter, and the second half deals mainly with Paul. Now both of them will imitate Jesus, and, and because of the way the book is structured, they, they mirror Jesus' own life pretty well. So Peter, in the first half of the book, Peter is involved in these miraculous healings. He raises somebody from the dead. All these incredible things are happening. And Paul, in the second half of the book, undergoes all these trials and sufferings and beatings at the hands of his own people until he's finally executed. And so in, in doing that, they are both are mirroring Jesus, and in fact, they're mirroring the progression of Jesus' story in the gospel, which begins with miracles and healings and ends with his suffering and death. And the book has a pretty clear structure. Jesus tells the apostles in the very first chapter that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, which are two provinces, okay? They are Roman provinces in the area that would compose most of modern-day Israel now. So there are his witnesses in Jerusalem, small little city, then out to Judea and Samaria, these provinces that are full of large populations of Jewish people, and then in all the world. And the story of Acts will follow that progression exactly. It starts in Jerusalem, with Peter and James and John and the other disciples, or now apostles, um, growing the Christian community in Jerusalem. And then they take it from Jerusalem out into the rest of Judea and Samaria. And then Paul will take it from Judea and Samaria into sort of what becomes the northeastern part of the Roman Empire. So it's mostly sort of Syria and modern-day Turkey, which is a hugely important region in the ancient world. Uh, very vital, lots of culture. That's where the Galatians are, uh, by the way. That's where the Ephesians are. Um, so, uh, And then from there, he moves into the Aegean area between, and then sort of Greece and Macedonia, right? So that's where, you know, Philippians are sort of up, sort of where Macedonia is almost, and then uh, Thessalonians, Corinthians, they're all in Greece. He takes a trip to Athens, uh, and from and then you know after that he will take the gospel right into the heart of the Roman Empire by traveling to Rome itself. And there's some ambiguity about whether or not he eventually made a missionary trip to Spain or not. One of my seminary professors believes he did, and it just wasn't recorded very well. Other people think that he had planned to go to Spain after Rome, and so was prevented from going to Spain by by dying. But he at least had plans to go all the way to Spain, which for them, at, at this time, was like the edge of the known world. Remember, no one has discovered the other continents yet, so they think that Spain is like where the world ends. So Paul had big plans. <clears throat> now Luke, 
who's writing the book, is a companion of Paul. He's going to get referenced, actually, in Paul's letters uh, as you know, Luke, the dearly loved physician. Uh, you can find that exact reference in Colossians 4.14, by the way. Um, so Luke is a traveling companion of Paul. He's with him on a lot of these journeys. And in fact, many times throughout this second half of Acts, you're going you're gonna to get these uh, what are called the we texts. They'll say, we went here. We did this. We saw this. Um, in those stories, Luke is telling you of things that happened to him while he was with Paul. So Luke, you know, for the first half, when he's talking about what happened with Peter and with those other guys, right, he would have had to, like, interview other eyewitnesses. But for Paul's story, <clears throat> you know, he's, he's there in person for quite a bit of it. Luke himself is an eyewitness to much of Paul's life, which oh, that alone to me makes him a very interesting figure. And he's a physician, so obviously he is traveling with Paul and is, you know, wouldn't you love if you're a missionary to have a doctor with you to help out the, the poor and the sick and, and care for them? Uh, so he's providing a valuable service to Paul, and then he goes and writes down everything. Uh, and wouldn't you love to just be like a fly on the wall when Luke and Paul are, are traveling. So you can sort of see, right? what we get in the letters is we get one side of a conversation that Paul has with churches he's already planted. Would have been incredible to actually be there as he's doing the work in the first place. And we should point out that Luke is not writing history. Luke is not just recording events. Luke is writing literature. So it's very evident from his style of writing, both in his gospel and in the book of Acts, that Luke is writing for a well-educated audience, for a well-read audience. And his writing style, specifically, is the exact same. I mean, it's, it's, he's writing just like the Old Testament authors did. So Luke believed, very, I mean, clearly he believed as he's writing, that he is writing sacred history, which is the same kind of thing that we see in the book of Joshua, the book of Genesis, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. He's writing in this way because it shows that he believed that the events he's witnessing are the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament, and most importantly, that they are part of the ongoing story of God and Israel. In other words, he is unique among the New Testament authors because he alone believed he was writing Scripture when he was writing. None of the other New Testament authors approach what they're doing this way. Paul was just writing letters. The other gospel writers were writing down the story so that they could teach their communities about who Jesus was and what he did and why it mattered. None of them, none of them understood as well as Luke the significance of 
of what they were doing. Luke is very purposeful, which is why his works are so detailed and they're so well written. And one of the main purposes of his gospel, and particularly of the book of Acts, is to show a continuity between Judaism and the church by showing that God's presence and activity is now with the church. So there's a key belief in early Christianity. which is effectively that now not it's not that the church is separate from Israel it's that the church is Israel paul will use phrases in the letter to the romans that were grafted on to the family tree and that's what luke is trying to show through these books that he's written that that gentiles and anyone who believes in jesus is now grafted on to the family tree we are now part of the elect, the chosen people of God. And in addition, now the whole world is God's promised land, God's holy land, not just Israel. This whole idea that Israel is still the promised land today in 2022, that it's still the holy land, that's not in the Bible. The Bible, the New Testament, and Luke and Acts in particular are very clear that all of God's promises to Israel in the Old Testament have been fulfilled in Jesus, and now a new covenant has taken its place. And now all those who believe in Jesus are God's chosen people, and now all the world is God's promised land. It's a radical shift in how God will interact with the whole world and how we are to interact with the whole world. Which is not to say that God has abandoned the Jewish people. Rather, that they, we are now part of the same family as them. So that's what Luke is doing in this book. He is showing how God has fulfilled his prophecies in the Old Testament. He has satisfied the promises he made there. And now he is doing a new thing. First through Jesus, then through the apostles, and now through the church. The story of God continues. I love this book. It's such a great part of the Bible. And it is, it's fascinating when you get, especially when you get into, I think, the second half and you start reading about Paul's journeys because, you know, you read through them and then you go into his letters and you can start to kind of connect the dots and you can sometimes see where he will reference in a letter an event that's described in Acts. It's just fascinating. You can kind of see the whole story of what Paul did. Um, and you see all these incredible stories of what God is up to in the early church. Really interesting. But the big picture is that now this is what God's doing. God has now moved beyond the boundaries of Israel. God's people are no longer just the Jewish people. And all of God's Old Testament promises have been fulfilled, and now he is giving us new ones. And so that's the book of Acts. I'll preach on it here in a few weeks. But that way you've got an overview that you can use uh, for the next couple of weeks as, as we, uh, I'm gonna, you know, we've got VBS 
Sunday, this Sunday, then I'm going to preach on the Psalms one more time. So you've got a couple weeks here where you're going to be reading through Acts before I preach on it. Um, I wanted to make sure you had at least that kind of a broad overview of it. Now, I had one question that was sitting this week. Someone was asking, why was David's census wrong? So in 2 Samuel 23, I believe, David orders a census of the people of Israel. And the people around him react in horror, right? It's, it's kind of odd. Right? Why, you know, oh, David, don't do this. What a terrible idea. You're going to offend God. David does it anyway. God's offended. God comes back and says, look, you've got to choose between three horrible things I'm going to do to the people of Israel because you took a census. <laughs> it's this whole big thing. He ends up having to, to build a new altar and offer a sacrifice on it to appease God's wrath. And it's just kind of an odd thing. So what's up with this? Well, first off, we should say that a census is not inherently evil. It's just a tool that governments use. So there's there's several, several things that could be going on as to why God's so upset with this census. He could be using it to... Uh, number all the men under 20 years of age for army service. That's forbidden in the laws in Leviticus, and so uh, that would be a violation of God's law if that's what he was trying to do. Another possible reason why it's such a big deal is that there's been no direct order for a census from God. And remember, David may be king, but he is really just a servant of the true king of Israel who is God. And so you can question whether he actually really has the authority to order a census on his own. A third possible reason is that he's going to use the results of the census to raise the taxes on the people. And there are specific laws in the Old Testament about how much he can tax them. And so, again, he might be violating God's law here. Fourth possible reason Perhaps David is not trusting in God's promises, specifically the one he made to Abraham to make his people innumerable. Maybe he's trying to make the people numerable and to see if he can test God to see whether that promise has come true or not. And fifth, maybe David is taking a census so that he can put his confidence, his trust in, in the numbers of the soldiers he can call to arms, right? Perhaps he is shifting a little bit, and instead of putting his trust and his confidence in God, it's his, he's putting it into the might of his army. Those are all reasonable explanations, but, but, there is actually a specific thing that David has done which could be causing problems. Now, all those could be true. All of those reasons I just gave might be a reason. <coughs> all of them might be part of why he ordered the census. But there is a part, there's a verse here, Exodus 30, 11 through 12. Listen to this. The Lord also spoke to Moses, Moses, 
saying, When you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. Now, remember what happens after David takes a census. There's a plague. So this is our clue here. When there is a census in Israel, each person who is counted as part of the census is supposed to says pay a ransom, right? So they're supposed to pay a fee, which will go to the temple. There may also be, this is not the same thing as a sacrifice. <clears throat> the ransom price here is there so that the people will be reminded that their lives are pledged to God. So, in ordering this census, without having people pay the ransom, What David is doing is he is usurping God's place as the protector and king of Israel. Right? So they take the census. This is King David's census. So you don't have to pay a ransom to God for this census, right? This is one of those concepts that, that just works a bit differently for us in the modern world. And it's a bit bit hard for us to see why this is so bad, but remember, a census in the ancient world isn't just about counting the population, setting taxes. It's about figuring out how many soldiers you can call upon to fight in your army, determining the strength of your kingdom. And only the king, only a king, has the authority to order a census. So by not making them pay the ransom price, by, by, by ordering a census that God himself did not order, David is taking a step too far. He is overstepping his authority. And it is vital that the people of Israel remember that God is their true king. Because when they forget, as we will see, really awful things happen. When the king forgets that God is the true king, Really bad things happen to the people. So the stakes are high, and therefore the punishment is also high. So that's what's going on. It is an odd episode, because, well, we don't live under kings anymore. Our census works a bit differently. You know, it's one of those things that doesn't always translate very well into the modern world. But that's what's going on. David has overstepped his authority as king, and as a result, uh, he is doing something which only God is actually supposed to do. So, that's it, folks. This was a short Bible study. Like I told you, crazy week here. We've got VBS in the morning. I think our count this morning was 316 kids. It's absolutely wild and crazy, uh, and I'm loving every minute of it. I'm really sad I have to miss out on the rest of this week, um, but be <laughs> be praying 
for our volunteers and be praying for the kids. It's a wild and crazy time. Uh, but definitely keep them in your prayers. A lot of cool stuff happening. Um, and as a reminder, you can always, if you have questions about uh, the Bible readings, if you have questions about readings that were done a long time ago or that will be coming up later, you can always email those in to me at forest.divini at asburycc.org. Uh, or you can just ask me in person when you see me around the church. Either way is good. So until next week, my friends, may God bless you all.